This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to another Start Your Week from the Bunker, where we try to alert you to what's going to happen in the week ahead. This time last week, we had no idea that American democracy will be on the edge of collapse by tea time on Friday. But what do you want? It's an inexact science. I'm Andrew Harrison, and with me, up bright and early, I've got Roz Taylor, editor of the LSE COVID blog. Good morning, Roz. How are you today? Hello there. Hungover despite having had no alcohol last night. What can I tell you? <laughs> oh, that, that's, that's 2021 all over there. So we're going to have to start with Trump and the decision to impeach or not, which has been developing at pace. Nancy Pelosi has been pressuring Mike Pence to push Trump to quit or she will start moves to impeach. Firstly, you know, is there any chance that he might resign or is he going to stick this one out to the very end? I don't think he'd resign. That's not the Trump way. It sort of shows weakness and it makes him look like a loser. And that's what he really, really hates. Plus, I imagine he has a few more people he needs to pardon in the next few days. And that would make it difficult for him to do that. Impeaching within two weeks is a tall order. But James Clyburn of South Carolina, the, the number three in the Democratic Party, says that the House could vote to impeach Trump by Wednesday. Yes, that's the plan uh, that Nancy Pelosi is suggesting. Um, that doesn't hopefully mean that the next three months are going to be entirely dominated by the Trump reality show, because that would obviously be the risk. Basically, you've got a new president. He's trying to make an impact. He's trying to get the uh, focus on what he's doing. And you get the Senate dragged down by an impeachment trial. What is the point of this? I mean, we, we've heard a lot of the week about how there has to be consequences for Trump's actions last week, but impeachment and uh, pressured removal are two separate things, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, it, well, it means he can't run again, which would be important, uh, not just symbolically important, but also really important, because we don't know what he may have in mind to do in the future. But it's also important to uphold the idea of democracy that that. America tries to sustain that you cannot encourage people to go and go and riot on the Capitol, basically, and get away with it. Because if that happens, then what has that opened up in the future about what what a president can do? You, it, it's trying to keep a lid on the on presidential powers, trying to ensure that they don't just go insane. And so I think that's why it's symbolically very important, even though, of course, we know he's going to be out of power on the 20th anyway. What would removing Trump do to the febrile atmosphere in the United States, though? Because we have outright denial from uh, many of the of, of the base that there was anything wrong here. 
The weekend was full of disinformation. It was anti-FAR in the capital. It wasn't Trump supporters at all. That infamous YouGov poll saying that 43% of Republican registered voters approved of the storming of the capital. So if Trump is removed, what does that say to that extremely radicalised, extremely riled chunk of the base? That is very difficult to say. And it's extremely difficult to think your way as someone who doesn't consume a lot of pro-Trump media into what these people are thinking. And I struggle a bit to think to, 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 to think into their mindset. I think it's got to go either one way or the other. Either they're going to lose faith in Trump as the man who is going to uh, expose the paedophile net and uh, enable their mass salvation. And he's going to look like a loser and he's going to look like someone who's failed at the job and potentially they're going to start looking around for somebody else who can for next time. But that's another question altogether and we can deal with it when then hopefully when that happens or they double down. And my instinct is perhaps that they might not double down because the capital was for all the vile spectacle of it. It wasn't a success. It looked a a bit of a mess. There were clearly people going in there intending to do very bad things. But when they went in there, they didn't actually manage to do very, very bad things for which we should all be grateful. And it's made them look a bit weaker than they would otherwise look. So that would be my instinct. It has a measure that they might not have done very bad things, but they certainly intended to do horrific things. Those images of yeah. you know, the, the guy in tactical gear with plastic hand ties. I mean, it was a pretty bad bit of DIY, but the appearance of a gallows, the intent was clearly there to, amongst some, might not have been the overwhelming majority of people who, who turned out to wave, to wave flags, but certainly amongst the core, to perform atrocities. Well, to certainly to appear to be performing atrocities. Remember, you know, the revolution will be televised, and it was. But, uh, and that was why they brought in the gallows. So, uh, but in the end, they didn't go full feral, as it were. It was pretty feral, but it wasn't there. It could have been a lot worse in terms of what they actually managed to achieve. They were pretty disorganised. And that's not under, to underplay the spectacle of the and, and how appalling it was. It was appalling. I, would, I hope I never see that happen again. But in terms of what they achieved, they had to retreat effectively. And they will know that. It's been interesting as well to see the extent to which the, the division inside the Republican Party is also becoming immensely bitter. Mike Pence has been cast in the role after years and years of totally obsequious following of Trump, you know, enabling absolutely anything and everything that every Trump whim is now the number one traitor. And Trump has effectively painted a target on his back. And the cry of many of the invaders of the Capitol was to get Pence. I mean, it's very difficult to see to say from our side of the Atlantic, isn't it? But are we going to be looking at increasing divisions inside the Republican Party? as Biden sort of, uh, you know, moves into government with control of Congress and so forth? Very probably, because I think what the Republicans will, sensible ones will take from this is that they had better not put someone like Trump at the top of their party again. It's, uh, they will be looking around for a more reasonable candidate. But as you say, there are people like Ted Cruz who are going the other way and who seem to think this is the opportunity to end democracy in the US. So uh, if that continues, there is bound to be a split of some kind. I mean, the Republican Party per se, the Grand Ole Party may persist, but there may be a break off um, and 
and another populist group. A lot depends as well on what traction that group can, can get. And one of the things I do take hope for, uh, take hope from in the last week or so has been the willingness of social media platforms to crack down on Trump, of course, and on the app to which he's encouraged his supporters to migrate. Parler, Parler. I never know how to pronounce it because I always think Parler, but it's, it's Parler. You can't say Parler. That's French. I know. French I'm is, sorry. So, I know yeah, it's got to be Parler because that's American. It's Parler, yeah. Um, to uh, encourage them to, uh, to uh, move to, to Parler and Apple and Google and so on have refused to have it on their platforms. So the degree of danger that Trump represents to democracy has finally been realised. The question is whether whoever succeeds him at the head of the wing of that extremely dangerous part of republicanism will be able to harness some other media to push their message. I want to ask you, though, do you, do you think this is a free speech issue? As his supporters have been saying, that Trump is being denied free speech by losing his Twitter channel and by Parley itself effectively being closed down. No, I don't. This is an argument that has been used for decades, and it very much comes out of the early libertarian spirit of the internet. And I remember grappling with it, in particular when I was working on uh, Guardian's Comment is Free, where we were encouraging people to post comments. And obviously parts of that turned toxic for all kinds <laughs> of different reasons. And we had to kind of rapidly come up with a way of trying to deal with this and a set of policies on what to do. And opinions within the, uh, within the Guardian differed about how much we should crack down on people. But my personal view has always been that if you run a platform, you have the right to decide what is acceptable speech on that platform. It is not a public space in this. It is not an attack on free speech for a comment on a blog to be removed because that is not the only way. In fact, it is only one of billions of ways in which your voice can now be heard in the current in the current social media ecosystem that we have. There are always other ways. And yes, we are making it more difficult for your voice to get out there. But given the situation we were in for hangover from from the early days of the internet, which was always more appealing to the US because uh, of the uh, First Amendment and free speech and so on. It, it, but I don't think that it's any more tenable to people who see what Trump has done with that platform that Twitter have so willingly given him and have taken so long to withhold. Let's come home and look at COVID, your specialist subject, your start of a 10, Ross Taylor. You've pointed out an observer story uh, from the weekend over there on the need of, for planning ahead on COVID or echoes of the pandemic could, could last for years. It's pretty grim reading. Martin Hibbert of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine says, we have to understand COVID-19 is going to become endemic. Even if every human on earth was vaccinated, we would still be at risk of it coming back. So what kind of long-term planning is needed and is there any sign of it happening? It will be endemic, yes. I mean, the idea that you can wipe it out is for the is essentially for the birds. Um, I think it's almost more medium term planning in this government that's needed at the moment because we're definitely or just planning. Yeah, we're not. We're definitely not getting that. We're coming up to a situation where if all goes to plan, then the most vulnerable uh, will have been vaccinated. Uh, uh, 
optimistically by the middle of February, although I, I some, somehow doubt the timetables. But, you know, by spring, we will be in a much better situation in terms of deaths and in terms of people getting seriously ill with COVID. So where does that leave you? It leaves you with a society where many people are desperate to get back to normal. There is no longer any justification for lockdown restrictions that depends on the pressure on the NHS, which is the main driver. And nonetheless, there will be lots and lots of people out there who are genuinely frightened of catching COVID and genuinely frightened in particular of catching long COVID and feel unable to go back into society because it will still be potentially endemic among young people and a young middle aged people who haven't been vaccinated and who haven't yet had it. So what does that mean for schools, particularly, you know, for teachers in their 40s, 50s, possibly quite vulnerable to long COVID, who don't want to be in that situation? What does it mean for jobs where you will see possibly the middle age not wanting to go back into the office, suffering in the job market as a result, being rapidly superseded by by younger people and you could say about time too, after all they've suffered in the <laughs> I last I strongly year. disagree. Strongly disagree, Roz. <laughs> But yeah, okay. But but you you can see you can see where I'm thinking, and you know a situation where the elderly are able to perhaps go off on a cruise in the summer, but the rest of us don't have uh, vaccination certificates, so we're not allowed to go anywhere much, which will create a lot of uh, of, of bad feeling. All these policy challenges are coming down the road, and the government is going to have to decide how much it rolls back the restrictions and how much it continues to clamp down. And there will be huge pressures from, you know, many of the usual suspects in the in the media to completely remove them on the basis that people are not dying at at all often of COVID any longer. But there will be other people who are terrified. And this is something that the government really needs to think about and what how it's going to what it's going to do, what it's going to prioritise, how libertarian it's going to be. Bringing it back to the kind of the the immediate future, figures continue to get worse, to rising to, to shocking levels. Anecdotal evidence: what you hear from your friends and your family, what you hear on social media, is that the observing of restrictions is nowhere near what it was in the first lockdown. Streets are full of people with takeaway coffees. Do you expect that the government will? not just tighten restrictions, but tighten enforcement of restrictions in that, you know, the, the, the endless refrain I hear is, I get on a bus, it's full of people with no masks, and nobody's doing anything about it. Do you expect that, that, that enforcement will tighten in, maybe not this week, but in the coming weeks? There are about 100,000 police in this country. It's quite simply impossible to enforce restrictions in that way unless you have a an order like you had in Spain where basically people just could not leave their homes during lockdown at all except to go to a pharmacy or a shop exercise was not allowed and nothing was allowed now the question is whether Britain is ready to do that I would be surprised if we were the idea of policing by consent that we very value very much in this country it would harm that a lot. And I don't think the government is ready for those kinds of confrontations, which will be meat and drink to many of its supporters. So I don't think, you know, I don't think it's people going for a coffee and getting a takeout coffee who are spreading the virus. I think where the virus is spreading is where people cannot afford to self-isolate and are struggling to 
to do all the things they have to do while being infectious with with COVID. And that is what we really need to tackle. But that is not a problem that is amenable to shaming people by posting pictures of them in social media, sitting in a group in a town centre. It's it's you know to try to throw the responsibility back on the on the um, public and say it's all your fault is must be very tempting for the government. But the fact is they haven't pr- fixed the big problems with test and trace, and they haven't enabled people who have to self isolate to do it without, in some cases, massive loss of income and difficulty. What's going to happen with homeless people being left on the streets in an extremely bad? cold snap we had we had no problem at all housing them in spring and summer when the weather was quite pleasant and now apparently we can't when uh, you know temperatures of of freezing is that going to become an issue do you think yeah i can well see it becoming an issue but i think there is unfortunately a degree of compassion fatigue and people are not thinking about it just because they don't have the emotional bandwidth to deal with that at the moment. I mean, if ultimately some of these people, as they do every winter, will die of cold. Um, during COVID, we've prioritised not overwhelming hospitals and saving lives in that order, as the decision to discharge COVID patients into care homes in the first wave showed. Before COVID, bad and cruel government policy killed people, but in a sort of slow, steady, reasonably invisible way, because we failed to link government failings and human suffering and death in a way that people could grasp. With COVID, we can. We can see how the government is failing because we can see that in the number of deaths and the number of cases. I hope that we will be able to at least keep hold of that feeling post-COVID, of that realisation post-COVID, that government policy matters, government policy kills people, government policy saves people, it has that power. And we could start, in the case of homeless people, for example, by removing the no recourse to public funds requirement, which basically means that if you're not supposed to be in this country, then it's very difficult for local councils to help you. It's basically an attack on, you know, in particular, people whose immigration status is unclear and who can't prove that they have the right to be here don't aren't in the queue for help. And just changing that would would make a bit of a difference. But yeah, it's it's uh, it, it is tragic and it's a cold winter and it's very hard for people to see really. I think how they can how they can help these people and they're seeing them less than they used to because there are many fewer people in city centres, seeing homeless people, to a certain extent, it's out of sight, out of mind, unfortunately. A couple more before we we wrap up. Uh, The government's warning that freight levels in Kent will be back to normal and that thus there will be the customers' delays that we all warned about. We're already seeing stories everywhere about empty shelves in Northern Ireland, Marks and Spencers uh, unable to get its goods into Northern Ireland, John Lewis deciding not to export to the EU at all. Michael Gove is getting his excuses uh, in early and claiming that we always said there would be disruption. How do you expect that story to develop this week? I think it will just be a slow attrition of companies gradually realising that exporting is now really hard. It will mean that they have to put their prices up abroad if they do continue to export because of all the admin and so on that they have to pay for. Is it still worthwhile? In many cases, it won't be. And you'll see an increasing number of companies just taking that decision to only serve a domestic market, which is tragic and entirely predictable. As we all know, we've been talking about this for years and years yes. that this would this would happen. 
more urgent. I mean, New- Northern Ireland is uh, a big problem now in terms of food supply. And one of the other things that's also compounding this problem is a shortage of staff in uh, supermarket warehouses. Places like uh, Ocado and Sainsbury's are losing lots and lots of people to self-isolation and having COVID. And that is slowing down things as well. So you will see you will see people beginning to notice that, oh, things are out of stock again. Oh, I can't get hold of this again. But this time it won't be quickly fixed because it's not about panic buying. It's about genuine problems with supply chains and genuinely less stuff moving around for Britons to consume. Finally, before we go, a little bit more Europe. Uh, Keir Starmer's interview with Andrew Marr at the weekend where he said he would not renegotiate the EU treaty if in government or argue for the return of freedom of movement. What did you make of that? I mean, his line was uh, a Labour government will have to make the treaty work. They will inherit it. How is that going to go down out in the electorate? And also how will it affect the the current civil war within Labour, do you think? Yeah, I read this with, I suppose, depressed resignation. I knew that for, for Starmer, Brexit is now something to be as far as possible put behind us and that he does want to focus on things that are more, you know, urgent in people's minds and he doesn't want to be defined as a certainly not as a Remainer and certainly not as someone who's obsessed with Brexit. Sometimes it feels that Starmer anticipates so well how Johnson is going to attack him that he no longer feels free to be entirely honest um, about what he really thinks. There were a lot of, well, we really perhaps should do this. Perhaps it's, you know, it's probably time we should close nurseries and, you know, freedom of movement, uh, you know, it's it, let's not talk about that right now. And unfortunately, this is becoming a bit of a narrative with Starmer where there's a vagueness which is understandable. He has a reputation for foresight, but not for innovation, but not for coming forward and saying, here is something that here is a labor policy not a, not just a lockdown ahead of the time that that johnson finally gets around to it but here is a labor policy and this is what we stand for and i think people are beginning to notice that and are going to begin to ask ask that particularly as i hope if we have the may elections in may well what is labor what does labor want what does it stand for? And he hasn't really set that out yet. The last nine months or so have really been firefighting for Starmer and trying to really make the party electable again. And he's definitely achieved that. It is electable again. But now people have a need to have a reason to vote for Labour that is not simply, it's not that useless fucker Johnson. <laughs> I, I would actually counsel that that's an excellent slogan, uh, Roz. I think, you know, put that on a mug and people would love it. Roz, thanks for joining us on this cold and miserable morning. Well, it's cold and miserable where I am. I don't know what, it, what it's like where the listeners are. Thanks for being with us, Roz. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Have a good week. Listeners, remember, you can get a new daily every Monday, Wednesday, Thursday and Friday. The full panel show will be with you tomorrow, Tuesday. Don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss any of them. Thanks for listening and we'll see you tomorrow. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.